One of the darker sides of the past few months, outside of the sickness and quarantining, has been living with everyone's reactions to quarantining and sickness. There's new and old information covering our news stations and the internet, and there are people whose lives have just been absolutely shattered by COVID, and others who have no idea what all the fuss is about. And unfortunately, the in a sense, war that all this divisiveness has has caused has drawn its lines in the schools. This week, I invited back to This Is You um, from a previous conversation, uh, one of our Dennis Wick artists, Travis Harris. He's a phenomenal band director and professional trombonist in Texas. And uh, his wife, Maria, who is a teacher and has degrees in both music performance and microbiology with minor in chemistry. Lots of degrees. Maria is also asthmatic, which makes her a very high-risk individual when it comes to COVID. With her background in science, music, and teaching, Maria has some great insights into some of the facts concerning COVID-19 and what it means for musicians and students. And as a longtime teacher, Travis has some insights into what the classroom looks like as well. We hope this discussion helps everyone understand each other just a little bit better and provides some useful resources as we move into the school year. So let's introduce you first, Maria. You have uh, degrees in music performance and microbiology. And while you have focused on both in the past, you currently are? I'm still a a teacher, but I, I, I am a homebound teacher. So I go into students' homes who have either their, from a severe illness or from an injury or possibly the birth of their baby. And I take all of their high school work to them in their homes to keep them in school, to keep them from dropping out, to try to keep He's them- He's basically a genius. Huh? He's basically a genius. Not a genius. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that's what I currently do. I was a science teacher in the uh, classroom before I started doing that. And prior to that, I did work as a, a research tech in, uh, at the University of North Texas. The last three years I did that, I was working in insulin research where we were trying to discover the insulin pathway in the body. Mm-hmm. So, And as you mentioned in our earlier conversation, you, you don't actually specialize in virology and... I'm not an epidemiologist. I'm not a medical doctor. I have, I'm not an expert. I just... I, because I love science and because I love research, I have always loved reading medical research and that's been forever (laughs) since I went to school. So when this popped up, automatically my eyes went towards all the research coming out about COVID. And you have to be careful too, when you read that research, people are, we're in such a hurry that people are are printing, you know, are reading the preprints, which are science, that hasn't been peer reviewed, it hasn't been duplicated by another, you know, lab. And you kind of have to be careful with those first things that come out, we have to kind of wait. And that's the hard part about all of this is it takes a lot of time for the research to be replicated and peer reviewed and then say, okay, this is is what we understand it to be as fact right now, because things change so rapidly and we've we're only in this a few months you know we haven't even been studying this a full year yet most other viruses we've been studying have been hundreds of years so going back to march and your first impressions of covid19 and the early research you were following um what is your impression now four months (laughs) later with all the research that's been done has anything changed for you very early january when it started 
because again, this is something I do on a regular basis anyway. So I actually started following it in January and started reading what was coming out of China. And you can ask Travis, <laughs> I, I, I had a couple of uh, sleepless nights in January because of my concern with what I was reading and what I was seeing. And um, I felt pretty strongly back then, including when we started seeing reports coming out from the cruise ship where people were isolated in their rooms and yet they were still becoming ill, that this was aerosol, that this was the airborne virus, that people were inhaling this virus, that people were breathing this virus into the air. And, and because if you're isolated in a room and the only access you're getting to other people is either by food or by the air conditioning system coming into your room and you're still getting sick, something else is going on besides, I mean, it could be a fomite, people delivering the food, touching the plates, touching the forks. But I was very suspicious early on that this was airborne, or rather, that's not really an appropriate way, that, that this could be transmitted via uh, aerosolized viral particles in droplets in the air. Right. So it, that part hasn't changed. It's just now we're starting to see science-based evidence that that's what's happening. Okay. So the only things that I didn't, you know, that, that I was unfamiliar with or unsure of at the time were the effects of this virus. You know, was this just respiratory? How, what were the long-term effects of this virus? And now we're discovering that this is a multi-system uh, disease, not just lungs, but it's affecting neurological uh, systems. It's affecting cardiovascular systems. So those things are, are we're starting to learn that's something that's changed in our in my perspective of what's happening with this virus. Since we know now, as you mentioned earlier, that this is an aerosol spread virus, knowing this, is there anything about COVID that has increased your concern or made you adjust the way you live in your environment? Um, well, you know, we have, we have other aerosol viruses. Tuberculosis is an aerosol virus. So, you know, we're familiar with how that's transmitted. Um, how did we do things differently? Um, you know, I, I'm asthmatic, so my my perspective of upper respiratory viruses is is kind of keen because those are things I have to avoid. <laughs> so because of my asthma, I'm always being warned by my pulmonologist. You know, you have to get the flu shot. You have to be careful. You have to have the pneumonia shot. You have to be careful of these things. So I was already guarded, but when this happened um, in and I started paying attention to this. I, once we shut down in March, that's when I kind of went into overdrive with my family and said, you know, we're not gonna go be around anybody else. That, and, that, and that's part of this too, is that because this virus, and, and this is true for a lot of viruses, for most viruses, you're contagious with most viruses before you ever have a symptom. So you might feel perfectly fine and you're, you're out there enjoying time with other people and you're at a party, you know, touching things that people are eating and et cetera, and transmitting that flu bug or whatever else, rotavirus to other people before you even know you're sick. So that was already a concern for me. We have since figured out that this, is, uh, this virus is not only transmitted pre-symptomatic, but also asymptomatically. So somebody can be sick with this for 
10 days is the is now I think the um, period that they're saying somebody is infectious or possibly infectious who has a mild or <clears throat> or asymptomatic. So you've got somebody out there that's walking around for more than a week that could be sick with no symptoms and transmitting that to you. So once this hit and uh, we got shut down, much to my son and my husband's dismay, I said, no more, we're not going anywhere. We're not gonna go to the store. We're not gonna, you know, no parties, no. And even I have a brand new baby, um, grandson, firstborn, my first grandchild. Mm -hmm. And because my, my other two sons are of that younger, you know, 20 to 30 age, and they could possibly be somebody, one of those people that are asymptomatic. I haven't seen them since March. I haven't held my grandbaby since March. And somebody may call me, you know, you know, fear based, you know, basing my behavior on fear, but the reality is I'm very high risk. So I, I, our, our behaviors have changed a lot. We have everything delivered. We don't go into a grocery store. We definitely go anywhere. There's lots of people. So. I can totally relate to that. <clears throat> Both my husband and son are in the high risk category as well. And I would say too, many people would look at the way we're living our lives and say we're going overboard um, with precaution. But when high risk becomes a reality, a lot of other decisions are really easily made. Well, I have family in Italy because that's where my father was from. So I was also talking with, with family in Italy when, when Italy was being hit very hard also. And I think that's one of the really frustrating things is to, to know that we've seen this happen multiple times in multiple different places and, and we're, not, we're not heeding what the, what the possible outcomes could be in anywhere in the, you know, in the United States. And I would say that this is the center of um, all the different reviews and reactions that we're seeing in the nation today. There are those who uh, COVID-19 hasn't even reached their towns yet. And there are other there are those of us who live in cities that are, you know, reached their peaks of COVID-19 and we have uh, high risk people in our families. And it really comes down to your own human experience is such a strong force that for many, even though they see it happening elsewhere, it's hard to truly understand um, the under type of understanding that brings out action. It's hard to have that understanding without actually going through the personal experience of the sickness at some level, either in your own family or you know outside of your family, someone close that you know. It's it's just hard to gain that level of understanding when it's not even in your town. And then on top of that, for people who do want to go and find out a little more information because they don't live in an area that's dealing with COVID nineteen right now, the amount of misinformation mixed in with the good information is just vast. So, you know, do we go straight to the scientists um, to find out what they're saying? Is that something that you would suggest, Maria? Yes. And I, I often recommended um, that to people, but it's hard because what I, what I follow is the epidemiologists and the virologists who are, are talking about this. And there's actually, it's really interesting because a lot of these researchers are sharing information and asking for people's input on Twitter, which I've, I've never been a Twitter user until I found them talking to each other, you know, because they're putting out there, hey, this is what we found. Um, here's the research that, you know, here's our paper. Is anybody else finding this? And so there's not just talking, you know, by phone or email, but they're also communicating on Twitter. So I'm following 
um, people like Trevor Bedford, um, uh, Lindsay Marr, who is a, uh, an aerosol scientist uh, at Virginia Tech. She's one of the foremost. Um, and, and reading the papers, listening, or, and I've even, <laughs> I've even emailed some of these people. Uh, there's Dr. Peter Hotez at Baylor who's speaking out right now. He's done a lot of interviews. Um, there was a, um, um, a webinar that uh, TAMIST, and I can't remember what it's Texas Medical Education. I can't remember what all of it stands for, but I take part in those webinars and I listen to the medical doctors and talk to each other and listen to what they say to each other. And so that's where I'm getting my information and very frequently I'll see them say something or post some research and read that research. And then a week to a week and a half later, you'll see it in the news. And unfortunately, sometimes because they're trying to translate the science to words that the general public can understand, often things are, and I don't, I don't think they're doing this on purpose, but it's not, communicated well because it's they're trying to simplify it and so somebody else might read it not understanding the science and misunderstand what that news article is saying so i go to the source that's where i get my information so with all the scientific journals and discussions that you're following do you feel like there are some specific directives that you are consistently seeing from the experts yes in fact um there's a a, a paper well it's there's a doctor or uh, in Boulder, Colorado. Let me pull this up. Um, Dr. Shelley Miller. Um, in fact, I even I was communicating with her on Twitter, asking because the preliminary communication they have a preliminary uh, information from the research that they're doing on, um, and this is specifically towards music on aerosol gen generating effects of instruments and of singing. And um, I, I directly just said, hey, what is, because they were talking about college and they had printed this long thread of recommendations for universities. And I said, what's the information for K through 12? And um, they, they were very specific about it. And there's a pre, there's a pre print, not really, but, it, but there's some information, a document I can send you that has recommendations, but she said they are going to be putting out their final in the next couple of weeks recommendations for this. Um, most of the epidemiologists and virologists are pretty much on the same page that this is aerosol transmitted, that um, you must wear a mask, that if you can't, um, that, that, you need to stay away from large groups of people that um, they're recommending, you know, if, if you can having uh, HEPA filters in your HVAC systems, um, everything that you've been hearing, um, you know, masks, social distancing, the six feet rule is simply because what they know about large droplets is that large droplets coming from your mouth will, can, will usually fall by the time, but by before six feet, but the small, tiny aerosolized droplets that they begin to evaporate and hang in the air for a period of time, those can go farther, you know, based on your your ventilation system, how good it is, how not good it is. That's why they're recommending windows be open because that moves the air more. Um, so, is that what does that answer your question? I don't know. <laughs> 
Well, thanks so much for joining us this week. This is where we have to stop. But Maria, Travis, and I hope you'll join us next week for part two of this discussion. And we're going to discuss next week a little bit more where the science intersects with musicians and music education. And we hope you'll join us.